Welcome to the Florida Bar Podcast, where we highlight the latest trends in law office and law practice management to help you run your law firm. Brought to you by the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Institute. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to the Florida Bar Podcast, brought to you by the Practice Resource Institute on Legal Talk Network. We're so glad you're joining us. This is Christine Bilbury, and I'm a practice management advisor at PRI and one of the hosts for today's show, which is being recorded from our offices in Tallahassee, Florida. My co-host is Jonathan Israel. Hello, I'm Jonathan Israel, and I'm the director of the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Institute. Our goal at PRI is to assist Florida attorneys with running the business side of their law practices. We'll be focusing on a different aspect of technology each month, and we'll carry that theme through our newsletter, website, and blog with related tech tips and articles. So this month at PRI, our topic is e-discovery. And joining us today, we have a rock star in the e-discovery world, William Hamilton. Bill is an electronic discovery expert and the executive director of the University of Florida Law e-discovery project. Prior to joining the faculty at UF, he served as the electronic discovery partner for his national firm. He has taught e-discovery at UF for the past decade and is the co-author of the LexisNexis Practice Guide, Florida e-discovery and evidence, and also the co-author of a student electronic discovery primer. Bill is a neutral arbiter and mediator for the World Intellectual Property Organization and the author of numerous domain name dispute decisions. He's been recognized by Florida Legal Elite, Best Lawyers in Florida, and Florida Super Lawyers. Welcome to the show, Bill. Well, thank you very much, Christine. It's a pleasure being here and looking forward to talking about e-discovery, which, as you mentioned, is just about my favorite topic right now. (laughs) That's great. So, Bill, tell our listeners a little about yourself and what you have going on at the UF Law e-discovery project. We're doing a lot at the University of Florida 11 College of Law. As the techies would say, we have a robust program. Um, We have a conference we put on every year. Actually, our conference is coming up on March 30th. And it's a conference designed to meet the hard questions that everyday practitioners face out in the field. So it's a very practical educational program uh, that we put on by bringing in, you know, 20, 25 national experts from around the nation, uh, people that work with legal service companies and law firms and work with the judiciary. In addition to the conference, we have courses we teach our students. We have two electronic discovery courses, uh, a basic course, if you will which is an advanced civil procedure course, as well as a course on the data search and analytics, which I think is very unique in the nation. Uh, we also bring in speakers during the year. Or we have an e-discovery distinguished speaker program. Uh, and just recently, we had Maura Grossman coming in from the University of Waterloo. Uh, Maura is the leading national figure in what's come to be known among lawyers as predictive coding. Excellent. So in the past, an attorney really had to hire an expert to handle e-discovery because it was almost considered uh, more of an IT function. So do you find that more firms are attempting to bring this process in-house? Well, it depends upon the size of the firm and the expertise within the firm. Clearly, if you don't have a lot of e-discovery experience, you're not going to want to go out and navigate uh, by yourself. You're going to want to have somebody by your side to help you. 
So uh, we recommend uh, that when attorneys are looking at this process for the first few times, they definitely hire a consultant. However, other firms are beginning to bring e-discovery inside the organization. That doesn't mean they're bringing e-discovery software inside the organization, but it means that they're developing the skill set within the law firm to do the vast majority of e-discovery by their own skill set which is just great. And in conjunction with that, what we've seen over the past four or five years is the emergence of a lot of new online cloud-based software that really is very handy to use. Uh, It's almost intuitive, and it provides a great resource for lawyers to do e-discovery themselves. And that's really, in many respects, what it's all about, because the pattern in the past was that Technicians, uh, very capable, talented technicians would be asked to collect the information and to process it and to load it into software. And the attorneys would have very little to do with that. And then uh, the attorneys would begin to say, well, now what do I do with this information? And they would have to start doing searches and things like that. And the technicians would really have little to do with that. So we had a little bit of a split in the practice, which is, I think, coming together now more in the last uh, two or three years with attorneys, even in mid-level firms handling mid-sized cases, are feeling more and more capable of handling uh, e-discovery themselves with maybe just a little bit of outside guidance. So, Bill, if I'm a solo or small firm attorney, can I afford some of these software packages or do I just bite the bullet and go find a consultant to do it for me? Well, I think those are two issues. Typically, the consultant can be an individual who may provide expert services and kind of guide the practicing lawyer through the process. Another way of going about it is hiring a consultant that actually works for a company that hosts itself or provides access to various kinds of software. Either way is an excellent way to go. Um, If you do go with a company that's going to help you provide access to the software, then you're going to want to make sure that uh, you have a separate billing structure for that. You want to know what are going to be the hosting costs and what are going to be the consulting services that are going to be laid on top. Because really uh, what you want now are consulting services on how to do e-discovery best, not merely access to the software. And so when an attorney finds themselves with a case that's going to require a lot of e-discovery, a lot of times that can be overwhelming for them. And so say they've brought in a professional, but they can't completely release the ethical responsibilities. So what are those responsibilities that an attorney still has for electronic discovery? Well, they're rather significant and they're rather expansive uh, in terms of imposing a responsibility on the lawyer essentially to make sure that every step is being done appropriately by the individuals and professionals that are working for him or her. So what you have is uh, the first step um, is you have to identify the locations of information. Uh, Then you have to identify how it's going to be preserved, working with the client. And it's not simply enough to say to the client, go preserve all the relevant information. The client's not going to have a grip on exactly what is relevant We can't be sure the client is going to identify all the locations. So the attorney has to be involved in that process, and that usually entails uh, interviewing uh, employees at the client's offices, uh, getting a data map or a network map of the locations of information, understanding the case and what are the disputed facts in the case and where the data may be located that's relevant to the disputed facts uh, in the litigation. Then the attorney has got to be involved in supervising the collection of the information, which has got to assure that this original data, these electronically stored files, 
are collected properly and without alteration, where you run the risk of a spoliation in the process. And then once it's been collected, it's got to be processed properly. And processing, in many ways, is creating an index, similar to the way you'd have an index in the back of a book. But there's different kinds of indexes that can be created. So uh, the attorneys involved need to know what kind of searches they're going to be doing and what kind of power they have to have in the index. Uh, For example, uh, you may decide that what you're going to need to do in your case is uh, find documents that are near duplicates to one another. Well, if that's the case, you have to have a a processing engine built into your rediscovery software that's going to be doing what we call overlapping shingles. That is uh, looking at uh, overlapping patterns of words that it can compare document to document to identify documents that are reasonably similar. And then you get into the whole search issue, which is how do we go about searching documents uh, properly? Attorneys have to be responsible for that and be able to uh, tell the court when push comes to shove that yeah, these are the search terms that we use or this is the search technology that we use. Uh, we tested it. Here are the results of the testing to make sure it's accurate and reasonable under the circumstances. And then finally, the attorneys have a duty under Florida law and federal law to produce the information in a reasonably usable format. So counsel needs to be responsible all along the way for those steps and uh, be prepared to go into court uh, to defend your behavior. Is there a product out there that would handle all these stages together, or do you need separate products to handle each piece of the puzzle there? That's a great question, Jonathan. Um, When the industry kind of was in its infancy, what we had was a situation where uh, there were different products that handled almost each step of the way, and you had to make sure the products could talk to one another. So that was one of our earlier challenges. Now we have uh, e-discovery software that's really integrated. So a good e-discovery software, a product, and, and you have to use e-discovery software to, to do modern litigation unless you have an extraordinarily small uh, and simple case. It comes bundled together. So most software and the online software just requires that the data be uploaded and it's processed according to various criteria. And then there's various search capabilities. And then it also provides for an export of the, of the data that's been selected for delivery to the opposition. The wrinkle there, of course, is collection and preservation. Uh, that's still uh, something that attorneys uh, must do, supervise. And that typically requires uh, a standalone product to do collection that then is uploaded to the online software. And so nowadays with all the social media, I know there's a, probably a lot of relevant uh, evidence out there. How are attorneys handling that? So if they've got to go get Facebook and Twitter accounts for multiple parties, are there special products for that or is it is it handled the same way? Well, that's a great question. And uh, you know what we're talking about now is what I like to characterize as the second wave of electronic discovery. Uh, the first wave from you know 10 years ago was essentially dominated by what we'll call Microsoft Office documents, productivity applications that produce documents that were used at work, such as PowerPoint, Word documents, email, uh, and that those sorts of uh, files. Now, all of a sudden, uh, we're all surrounded in this uh, what we'll call bubble of information, electronically stored information that surrounds us that that we live in, which involves computer devices stored in in all kinds of things around us. So we've all heard of the wired house, if you will, and uh, social media has become uh, dominant. 
Billions and billions of posts are made to all sorts of social media every hour, if not every second. So there's a huge amount of information out there. And you're right, this can be very important evidence. And how do attorneys go about identifying it, collecting it, and then utilizing it? The industry's lagged a bit when it comes to uh, handling social media evidence, frankly. There is some software out there that will help gather uh, this information. Attorneys uh, are also resorting to more primitive techniques, such as taking screenshots and things of that nature, which raise real Mm -hmm. issues of admissibility, uh, which is a huge problem. Uh, And then ironically, um, social media sites have responded by providing their own takeouts or downloads. So actually, you can go to uh, Facebook and Twitter and some other sites, and they'll allow you to download your own information, not in a wonderfully usable format, but you can get information that way. So we're moving forward on uh, social media and cloud collections, uh, but it's not where uh, where we'd want it to be. There are some products out there, and I would urge uh, the listeners to research those products uh, and use those uh, tools to handle uh, social media the same way that we use collection tools to handle office documents and other locations. And then when we were preparing for the podcast, we were having more and more conversations about that. So you're talking about Twitter and Facebook, but then it occurred to me, have there been cases where there was relevant information inside like a fitness app on someone's smartphone? Like say they were claiming that they'd been seriously injured or they were disabled, but they had been, you know, logging in 10,000 steps a day. Has there been a case like that? Oh, there have been a number of cases like that. In fact, it was actually featured in one case where it doesn't take a great imagination to figure out how that information would be relevant. I mean, someone could claim in a personal injury action, for example, that their behavior has been dramatically reduced. They can't function as well. Their life has been impoverished. And uh, that could be directly refuted by Fitbit information that's stored in the cloud that directly refutes that. On the other hand, it could be very positive information that supports the claim. If somebody was running, you know, what, 20 miles a week before an accident and all of a sudden they're walking, you know, a half a mile, it would seem to me that that would be reasonable evidence from which inferences could be drawn as to the impact of the injury that they're complaining about. So the evidence cuts both ways. It can undercut a claim and it also can support a claim. And you're right. Uh, just look at the apps that are out there, the thousands of them that you can download onto your smartphone, and uh, which is you know basically just your portable computer that does all kinds of tracking and information. Automobiles, for example, I think it's pretty common knowledge among attorneys now, but your automobile is constantly recording all kinds of information through various kinds of sensors uh, that send information back to the manufacturer, but also record. Um, the speed of the car at any particular moment, uh, record whether the brakes were applied, record uh, at what point uh, the seat belts were uh, were buckled on. So this information in the so-called black box in the automobile is just typical of the vast amount of information uh, that's out there and what's come to be known as the as the Internet of Things. So it's just we just live in this world that's abounding with evidence and which is kind of exciting because it helps us get to the truth quicker we just have to be a little more capable and a little more enthusiastic about grabbing all this electronically stored information that's out there how quickly do you see some of these software vendors adapting to this technology you know as these new apps come out like snapchat or whatsapp that's able you know allowing people to send these messages to each other you know, and then they just kind of disappear from existence. Do you see these vendors being able to keep up? 
it's a struggle for vendors to keep up uh, in, in terms of obtaining information from cloud locations because I typically think of the cloud location as a database. And what happens is, is you want to communicate with that database. So what the cloud application will do is provide a port, if you will, or a, a door to get in and pull out some of the information. And writing that what's called application interface, uh, it establishes a handshake between the, the person uh, outside the social media site or outside the database and inside the database. Uh, you have to write it properly and you have to understand it. And uh, unfortunately, those application interfaces change and we don't know all the information that's being provided. So there really isn't a standardization across the industry. So then it becomes a question of pulling down data from one app to the next. And you're right, it can be expensive and it can be uh, tiresome and frustrating. So that leads us into the next question. There's so much that, that an attorney is expected to do to supervise the process, to think of all the ways that they need to gather the evidence. Where are you seeing the most sanctions against attorneys in, you know, maybe their failure to handle this properly? Yeah, you know, we like to talk about sanctions. Well, actually, we don't like to talk about sanctions. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think the, the key motivation for attorneys, and when I was practicing full-time. I was, of course, you don't want to be sanctioned, but the thing is you want to be able to get your client the best possible result. That's what brings the clients back to the, the attorney and creates a consistent practice and consistent, you know, billable hours, if you will. So it's getting the evidence allows you to win. That's the big motivation. Now, the downside on the sanctions, uh, where we're seeing them now is in words where the needle has been for a while is in preservation. Uh, how do you preserve information? And the sanctions are, when you say sanctions, we're talking about, you know, case dispositive sanctions, things of that nature that are very serious. This will result from, you know, a failure to preserve information because once it's gone, it's gone. And then the court's uh, involved in a leveling process and the leveling process can be very serious. So preservation, identification and preservation are still critically important. And as you pointed out, Christine, in this world of multitudes upon multitudes of sources of information, it's a trying process that attorneys need to be very diligent about at the very, very beginning of the case. We're also seeing sanctions in terms of uh, still sluggish behavior, attorneys not cooperating in e-discovery. We're seeing sanctions in terms of search failures doing a lousy job. Another area where we see sanctions a lot are what we call self-collection. Uh, where the attorney basically says to the client, uh, go out and get me the relevant information and give it to me without any further direction. Typically, clients aren't capable of doing that. They don't know how to do that well and preserve all the, the metadata and the integrity of the file. And also, there's always the unfortunate circumstance where you don't have a, a client that wants to exercise its, its obligations to the tribunal and intentionally does a lousy job collecting information. So those are principally where we're seeing sanctions, but it can happen anywhere along the discovery process if an attorney stumbles and doesn't do a good job. Okay, so now that you've thoroughly scared all of our listeners <laughs> about the discovery process, other than your law school, where can they go out and learn how to keep up with this e-discovery and how it's constantly changing and evolving with technology? Well, really, there's a lot of information out there, and the information comes from a number of sources. The, the classic sources for competency and electronically stored information practice would be to go to the Sedona Conference. The Sedona Conference was an early think tank. They have uh, great papers, 
great explications and, and a wonderful uh, group that's continuing to turn out, for lack of a better expression, uh, practical guides and white papers on how to do rediscovery properly. Another great historical think tank is EDRM, uh, which was recently acquired by Duke Law. They have tremendous resources there in terms of guides that can be done. Individuals tend to look at the at the graphics, the EDRM model and other graphics, and EDRM means electronic uh, discovery reference diagram, tend to look at the, the schematics. But really what EDRM has that are available to the public are its guides that will work you through each stage of the e-discovery process kind of step-by-step. So that's a great resource as well. And there's great blogs out there. Uh, Here in Florida, Ralph Losey has a great blog that he writes and help people keep up to date called the e-discovery team. And Craig Ball has an excellent blog called The Ball in Your Court, uh, which also helps people uh, stay up to date on events. So if you're following the Sedona Conference, uh, following EDRM, following Ralph Losey, following Craig Ball, you're moving in the right direction. And of course, you're always going to want to follow University of Florida eDiscovery Project and our various offerings. I was going to ask you if eDiscovery is now being taught in most law schools, but I'm also wondering, do you have older attorneys that are asking if they can come audit your classes down at UF? Really, it's less uh, more senior attorneys asking you to come and audit classes, but more and more we're seeing law firms telling their associates-to-be who are currently law students to take e-discovery and make sure they understand it. So, yeah, we're meeting that need at the University of Florida. Uh, There are a number of other uh, courses offered by various law schools. These are typically taught by adjuncts. These are practicing attorneys that, for the most part, uh, volunteer their time and come on campus to teach classes. So we're getting some traction on teaching electronic discovery, uh, but frankly, not as much as we should have because e-discovery really has become the guts of the civil litigation process. And if it's done right, everything works well. If it's not done properly, uh, we have one train wreck after another. Well, it looks like we've reached the end of our program. I want to thank William Hamilton for joining us today. It's a pleasure being here. Uh, Thank you very much, Christine. Thank you, Jonathan. It's been an enjoyable uh, chat we've had together. I feel like we've learned a lot. If our listeners have questions for you or they want to follow up, how can they reach you? Are you on social media? Well, yes. Both the Discovery Project is on social media. We also have a Twitter feed uh, that you can follow and Instagram as well. But the best way to get in touch with me is just send me a plain old email. And that email address is hamiltonw at law.ufl.edu. This has been another edition of the Florida Bar Podcast brought to you by the Practice Resource Institute on Legal Talk Network. I'm Christine Bilbury. And I'm Jonathan Israel. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Florida Bar Podcast brought to you by the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Institute and produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find the Florida Bar, the Florida Bar Practice Research Institute, and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.